Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 84. So I feel like a lot of people are going to be most valuable when they are a good strength coach and also have the ability to be a good sports scientist. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Chris Morris of the University of Kentucky, Director of Performance Sciences. Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. So um, I'm really excited about this episode. You just spoke and recorded a session for our advanced periodization clinic, which is coming up virtually in, uh, in November. So I'm, I'm really excited about that event and uh, really glad you could be a part of that. Absolutely. No, it, it, was, it was a good opportunity. Uh, I was glad to be able to do it. Talk a little bit about fluid periodization, my research and some new methods and training. Yeah, so I want, I want to ask you about fluid periodization and that topic, but before we start, just get into your background a little bit and tell us how you got started in the field of strength and conditioning and, and your role now. Yeah, so, you know, I, I went to University of Kentucky in 2002. I uh, walked onto our football team there. Uh, and like I talked about in my presentation, there was two things that I quickly realized as a freshman at UK. One, um, you know, there's some guys that seem in the weight room that adapted a lot quicker. They could look at weights and get bigger. And then two is someone that got hurt. I got hurt three times when I was there. There was guys that didn't no matter what they did, never got hurt, uh, were always, you know, adapting. And then there's guys like me who never could seem to get ahead of the curve. And so right away, I knew that even though we were training the same, there was two totally different outcomes. Um, and, and it really kind of set the foundation of for what I would later become fluid periodization in my research. But, um, you know, after I got done playing football, uh, started my master's program, uh, and eventually my PhD. And around that same time, I started my PhD in 2013, Eric Corum and coach Stoops came from uh, Florida state, which had recently had just adopted catapult and this new kind of high performance model. And he brought a lot of tools and technology with them. Uh, one of them was a mega wave. And so being a former player, I just happened to kind of walk into the facility one day, introduce myself, said, Hey, I'm a PhD student. I uh, would love to help out with anything that you, you need. And then that's when a mega wave for me kind of took off in that project and where I really started to learn about the differences in genetic potential of athletes. And one started to answer those questions of why did I get hurt versus someone else? And why do some guys seem to excel in the weight room where others don't? Uh, the foundational components of why Omega Wave works really kind of led me in that direction. And so that's when uh, I wrote uh, fluid periodization uh, and that dissertation. And then, you know, from there, like I said, it kind of just kind of took off uh, uh, my career. I started at the University of Texas uh, the year after I graduated from UK. Uh, and then Coach Stoops a year later had called me back and said, uh, they had an opening there, and since I'm from Kentucky, got my PhD in Kentucky, played in Kentucky, families from Kentucky, I knew it was a great opportunity uh, for me to go back and, and set up roots uh, there at UK. It's really uh, great that you can put some roots down and, and you you know stay in one, stay at UK all this time, and uh, that that's pretty unique for our field. And you have a uh, you have a newborn at home, right? Correct. So. Had her first child in January, uh, January 6th. It was four, four weeks early. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was funny. We, we literally got off the plane from our bowl game and we were in the hospital that same night. Um, she didn't come for another five days, but I just thought it was funny. She waited to the 
you know, the exact moment when football season was over and she came. So, yeah. But it's been a blessing. The quarantine, like I said, a lot of people, for me, I've got to spend more time with my daughter that I may not have otherwise. Yeah, no, I feel the same way with my family. It's been a, uh, it's been a challenging time for, you know, for, for everyone with a lot of uncertainty and we don't, we, we didn't know what was coming when this, when this came on, but the one positive has been spending extra time with our families and, uh, and, and, and I know my kids have really, uh, really enjoyed that. And, and that that's really great. So, Absolutely. um, so what you said, you know, about fluid periodization and, and, and your background really kind of triggered that it kind of brought me back to the sports gene with David Epstein talking about high versus low responders to training. Um, take a minute for our listeners and just explain what fluid periodization is. I think sometimes there's terminology that comes out in our field that may be closely associated with other terms and you hear it and you just don't know exactly what we're talking about. So could you break that down for us? Right. So, you know, periodization in itself is, is just a training method that alters loads and intensities to enhance uh, athlete recovery and responsiveness to training. Fluid periodization is basically saying, hey, I have this plan. I've got these sets and these reps programmed, but I'm going to take some sort of objective measure, what we call athlete readiness, to see if my athlete can receive that training load that day. Now, readiness is impacted you know, by a lot of different things. And so we talk a lot about um, how stress plays a huge impact on an athlete's ability to recover from day-to-day training. So no matter what we do as strength coaches, we're going to say we're going to squat on Monday, but then we're going to turn around and do a dynamic day three days later because that's when super compensation is supposed to occur. The reality is that because of you got those high responders and low responders, then you mix in the fact that you might have a high responder but has three exams that week or had just gotten a fight with significant other or a grandparent has passed the amount of stress makes them a low responder that week because now the body has to determine which stress they're going to adapt to. Um, and so if you take into consideration the amount of genetic variability that we see between athletes, the amount of external stressors, especially now more than ever in college athletes with social media and academic constraints and financial constraints, you quickly can see that there's no guarantee that supercompensation occurs like it is in the textbook. It's a very nice, pretty picture of we have a stimulus, we have fatigue, we have compensation, and then super comp, and it all occurs within 72 hours. It's a beautiful concept, but in reality, uh, very far from it. And even in the presentation I gave for you guys, I take it all the way back to where periodization, like the foundation was even developed in the Soviet Union and how that came about with Soviet scientists and you know, how that was a perfect world for training because these Soviet athletes were told when to wake up, when to eat, when to sleep, and everything was very, very controlled. And we won't even talk about the pharmaceutical potential uh, aids that they had in that. So we developed this training model that hasn't really adapted in 40 years. I mean, it didn't get to the United States until 1980. So the Soviets have had it for 20 plus years because they refused for scientists to collaborate with any other um, scientists in the world. And so it stayed in that little bubble. bubble. Um, and even since 1980, we still have kind of held on to what we've known instead of kind of looking uh, beyond that small little box, even when science has shown us that, you know, maybe this isn't the most optimal way to train. Yeah. So it really connects closely with the concept of auto-regulation, but maybe broadens it a little bit when you're looking at the overall readiness of the athlete uh, beyond the weight room setting. So um, that's kind of my takeaway and, and not to give too many spoilers, but you, you gave a great automotive like vehicle dashboard analogy in your talk. And 
I think that was really uh, beneficial. There's so many automotive analogies in our field, you know, uh, but uh, if you just share that with our audience here today and then we'll, we won't give too many spoilers on the upcoming event, but um, I thought that was great. So, Yeah. And, and so basically the reason why there's so many automotive uh, examples is because at the end of the day, humans are machines and a car is a machine. There has to be fuel. We have fuel. There's a power output. We have power output. So there's a lot of similar components. So I think it's really easy uh, to make those parallels. But in, in the example that I gave is basically readiness or having measurements of readiness gives you a look inside the athletes, um, you know, under the hood and what we rec represent as a, a dashboard. Um, so we talk about two different components and we'll just talk about what I consider readiness to adapt. So that's your heart rate variability and direct current potential, uh, that you can measure. And basically what you're, you're looking at is how much fuel do I have to train today? So if I get in my car and say, all right, I'm in a quarter tank, it's not very full. Uh, I'm not going to make it very far. How do I want to spend this quarter tank of gas uh, versus, you know, the DC potential, which is representative of the brain uh, really kind of is the computer or the car that receives all these stimuluses external to internal and then adapts to that uh, environment. So if the DC potential is low and the brain's uh, ability to operate what we call functional systems is low, the entire structure of the body, like, you know, if I push in the gas, it might not be as responsive or if I push in the brake, I might not get that immediate response. And so, you know, there's potential when those delays happen or we'll, we'll relate it to running, for example, when, you know, running is such a, a very closed system. If the DC potential is low, it might open up the door for an overstride or a braking mechanism that is a little bit delayed that may force or cause an injury. Um, I know Landon just Landon Evans, at the University of Iowa, just released a paper talking about the DC potential was more reflective of injury uh, than maybe heart rate variability. So it just shows the importance of what the brain is. Um, so getting into your car and looking and having a visual representation of what do I have to work with today? Am I able to go, you know, an entire training session to have that fuel for it? And then is the engine, is the brain, is the computer able to handle those uh, type of training sessions? And you get immediate feedback right before you start the session to say, you know what, maybe I need to alter, uh, I'm going to need to take away some accessory volume because that's just gas I'm burning up that I don't have to adapt to. Um, so it, it is like just kind of getting a look under that athlete's hood before you start to train. And then we moved into the, the readiness to train component, which is your velocity-based training reps and reserve RPE methods. Uh, so both of those two combined gives you an overall picture of the athlete that day. Yeah. So advanced periodization virtual clinic uh, will be in November. It's going to be a great event. We're going to have a lot of very high profile uh, presenters with a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge. So uh, stay tuned for that. And we will uh, be communicating that out to you uh, very soon. Um, Chris, I want to explore some of these emerging sports science professions and your role at UK is maybe, you know, director of performance sciences. It's, it's a role that maybe wouldn't have been around 20 years ago, but we've seen uh, an upswing of this type of oversight sports science specific role um, in the field. Um, could you tell us what that job description looks like and how your role came about? Yeah. So, you know, it's one of these, it's, a, it's an interesting shift uh, in thought process. And I think a lot of it comes down to is we are being, um, you know, bombarded with more and more and more information from technology that keeps on increasing. We're getting more information about our athletes 
and we don't really have a vehicle to handle that type of information. I think the biggest thing um, that we do at UK that I think a lot of other people are striving to is a simple statement is that we try to learn faster than everyone else by using the data that we get on our athletes every day. So um, I break it into three, three distinct categories of what we do. We profile the game uh, through our GPS technology to really understand what the demands of the game are, which aligns with NSCA's, you know, profile your sport uh, or needs analysis of sport. And then the next thing is profiling the athlete. So identifying strengths and weaknesses in our athlete that are relative to their sport. So we use the game demands to determine what our testing protocol is for our athletes. What should this athlete be able to do to handle the demands of the game? And that third component is monitoring the process. So one of the big research questions I have at UK is, what is my average expected growth of the athlete from year one to year two, from year two to year three, year three to year four, right? Because we always talk about our mission statement at UK is to maximize genetic potential. Well, what is genetic potential? And what is genetic potential for that athlete? And how do they progress from year one to year two? Uh, so a lot of it centers around good data collection, good testing, um, and then monitoring, giving the feedback to the athlete to say, hey, you know, your growth rate is a little bit less than the average or it's a little, it's above the average. And it gives us an idea of where that athlete might be heading. Uh, and it also allows us to have an early intervention. Hey, genetically, you may not be as gifted as some of our athletes. Therefore, you need to be better technically. So you need to be in the film room tactically meeting with your coaches to understand the game better, or you're just going to have to eat and sleep better than everyone else for you to even maintain SEC level competitiveness. And you give that feedback to the athlete and gives them a roadmap to success. So, you know, like I said, big three things is profile the game, profile the athlete, monitor the process. So you're adding another layer of analysis and evaluation. What are some of the challenges uh, that, that, come about be, uh, with this role and um, how do you address those? So the big thing that, that we're working through right now is, you know, your, your models are only as good as the data you put into it. So really emphasizing things that we've, we've kind of been taught, like, you know, your pre-test should be the same conditions as your post-test, meaning, you know, if we're testing on a hardwood court for a change of direction, we need to make sure we're doing our post-test on a hardwood court versus maybe a field turf. Um, getting good quality data into the system and making sure that that's across the board. So much that I feel like the future of this athlete assessment is going to be in an assessment center. So similar to what the University of Oregon has in the Mariota Center, it's one place where you do all of your athletic testing. It means the environmental conditions are the same, uh, the surfaces are the same, and everything is very controlled, or like the University of Nebraska has their performance center. Um, so, but right now it's like, okay, we're going to do our aerobic fitness test with our soccer team. And in, uh, August, when we do our pre-test, it's 85 degrees, there's dew on the field. We do our post-test at the end of the season to see if there's any decrements of fitness, but it's 32 degrees and there's frost on the field. So but how do those two things affect, you know, the outcome of the test? So a lot of it right now is just trying to strategically figure out how we can make our testing conditions the same to make sure our quality of data, um, is the same as well. You have a strength and conditioning background and, and you were also an athlete yourself, um, but you've progressed into a director level sports science role for young strength and conditioning coaches. What are some of the skills to focus on in pursuing a similar path? Right. So that's, that's a really tough question. I, I'm still at the point where 
there's, we're creating this dichotomy, right, of sports science and strength and conditioning. Like you said, uh, I think earlier it's, you know, a good strength coach is also a good sports scientist. Uh, sometimes a sports scientist is not a strength coach, but I feel like you have to understand, to be a good sports scientist, you have to understand both sides of the equation. You have to understand how your inputs in strength and conditioning are going to affect your outputs uh, so you can have an idea of what we're really measuring. Um, you know, I think for now, with a lot of the students that I'm seeing coming up through the program is one, you know, an appreciation of what data is. Data is not going away. I think, you know, early days, strength and conditioning, we weren't exposed to a lot of data. We were, we, we work in Excel, but we don't really know how to leverage or harness Excel's power. Um, and so to new strength coaches, I always tell them, I was like, really understand how to uh, evaluate your athletes, have good record keeping and learn how to track progressions over time. That's essentially what a sports scientist, um, you know, is, is good at, is monitoring change over time. And so I, I don't think in the short term there's going to be a, a sports scientist for every team, like there's a strength coach for every team. So I feel like a lot of people are going to be most valuable when they are a good strength coach and also have the ability to be a good sports scientist. So have the ability to use tools that help you understand the demands of the game like catapult or have tools like uh, Omega wave or HRV elite or anything that can measure internal load to understand the athlete's response uh, to these training loads. Because in reality, your power five schools might have these positions uh, kind of overarching, but at the end of the day, I'm only one person at the university of Kentucky for 22 sports. I have to hinge on my strength and conditioning staff and help empower them hey, this is Catapult. This is what it does. This is how you run it. This is how you read these reports. This is how you communicate to the coaches. This is how you drive change. And so a lot of what I'm doing is help educating my younger strength and conditioning staff members to take this role on themselves and learn uh, and grow as a professional. So uh, you see it sort of as a pathway. I mean, those young strength coaches could advance into a more senior level role as a, as a sports scientist or, you know, we... Um, I think when we get into this field, sometimes we think of that head strength coach role as, as maybe the pinnacle position. And, and for many, that's what we want to achieve. Um, sports science in many ways is another career track um, yeah. for strength coaches and, and other practitioners in the field to, to move towards. So I think that's, uh, I think it's really exciting to kind of see what you're, see what you're using technology wise and applying that technology. One thing I want to ask you is, how has technology changed the training and communication process with athletes and staff um, at UK? And, you know, just speak to that process. I think that's one of the big challenges that and fears by many coaches is we add technology. It changes what I do on a daily basis. What, what's my role now? How do you know? So um, speak to that if you would. I think anytime that you introduce technology, uh, I think a lot of people make the mistake because they want an intervention without a known outcome, right? So we're going to bring in catapult and we're going to start looking at loads, but all right, is that a high load? Is that bad? Is that a low? Is this load good? Like, you know, we oftentimes will bring in a piece of tech and we'll say, oh, that that's way too high. We need to back it off. Well, we've never collected data. So I think one of the big fears is that, you know, you're going to get this data and it's going to tell you to change right away when in reality, you know, we won't know what to change until an outcome occur, like an injury. So for example, working with women's basketball or just a lot of my basketball teams in general, what they do is they have this really big preseason low training load and then they get into the 
non-conference games, which also aligns with the back half of the semester and they start pulling back on load. Uh, and they start doing a little less and a little less and they get into Christmas break and they're all the way off. And then of course, right after Christmas break happens, you see this huge load spike. So when you overlay and show them like, um, hey, your, your training load is going down, all of a sudden you have this massive training load spike and we started having injuries pop up, then that's, that's an intervention with a known outcome is, this, okay, we don't have to change necessarily a lot, but how about we not decrease our load so much going into finals and Christmas? Uh, but also more importantly is after Christmas break, we just don't go from zero to a hundred really quick. We kind of bleed them back into it. And what we notice is we have less soft tissue injuries, uh, and we have a better production coming out of the off season. Now, um, I relate technology like anything. So just for example, have you ever used my fitness pal to track your diet? I think technology brings awareness to you. It's like, Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, you know, that packet of ranch I have in my salad had 40 grams of fat. That makes me subconsciously, not subconsciously, consciously. Now I make a change. Maybe I don't use all of that ranch on my salad. It's just like with training load is like, Oh, I didn't realize we were training that hard before a game. Maybe I need to pull back. So a lot of times technology brings awareness to our process. Like I did not know that this had such a huge cost or I didn't know this had so many calories. And then therefore you can start to see, maybe I should pull back before, a game or pull back before this happens. So a, a lot of times data is powerful by just bringing awareness um, and, and actually capturing what's actually going on. Yeah, totally agree with that. And you touched on, you know, holiday break and training around periods of inactivity. Um, that's exactly what we're dealing with right now with COVID-19. Um, how has uh, UK responded and your department, uh, what's the involvement of your role in, in return to training practices? Yeah, so the good thing is we've got so much historical data, we know where we need to get to. And now that we know what the NCAA has given us a timeline and we kind of know what to expect, we can start progressing loads to make sure we can still meet uh, camp demands. So basically, as if I know where I'm going now, I can go back and backtrack and say, okay, these are my load progressions. This is what I can safely increase by. Or is this going to be necessarily, can we safely get there or do we have to take bigger leaps and be more aggressive? Um, luckily, with our guys kind of starting to filter in right now, we've got plenty of time before camp starts that we know that we can safely progress our loads back into uh, our normal training camp you know, it's, it's a little bit more interesting for like our, our soccer teams who don't necessarily get back until later in the summer as we're having to say, okay, if they get here on July 15th and they turn around, they start camp on August 1st, you know, the message to them is like, Hey, this is what you're going to be required to do when you get to camp. And you're only going to have two weeks with us before you get here. Like you should have, we, we've programmed these high speed distances and progress them week to week to make sure that you meet those. So it's more of like, Hey, you know, if you knew your test was five miles and you had to get a certain time, you, as an athlete, you knew that you would work your way up to it. So we give them these loads and explain to them like, hey, if you don't come in prepared for this load, because it's not going to change, then you're putting yourself at risk for injury. And our players really respond well to knowing exactly what where they have to get to and they can see their load progressions because we give them that feedback. That's great. Um, Let's go back to the beginning for you. You know, who are some of the biggest influences on your coaching style and who do you read and, and follow in the field? So, you know, Eric Corm was one of obviously my big influence because he introduced a model uh, to me early on, the high performance model. And I think a lot of times, even with Eric, 
those early adopters really, um, I, I'm not going to say struggle, but they didn't understand, you know, how much data was involved in that. And if you didn't have a good data structure to handle that data and your feedback mechanisms were that weren't there, um, it, it really, the athlete became kind of overwhelmed by the amount of testing without really understanding the process. And so, you know, Eric was an innovator in that area and helped me kind of understand the importance and value of quantifying external load, quantifying internal load, uh, understanding the athlete's adaptive process. Um, you know, people like Brian Mann with velocity based training, understanding that athletes aren't going to be necessarily ready to train and you had to have some sort of mechanism. I remember when I wrote my dissertation, getting into the discussion section and really struggling to find other people that had that kind of mindset or this auto regulatory process. And there's still to this day is just not a whole lot of research revolving those methods compared to like linear and undulated traditional type training methods. So Brian Mann was a big, um, was big in, in that process as I kind of wrote my discussion and, and continue that foundation and fluid periodization. Um, you know, I think a lot of times, like from a scientist perspective, um, Selye, even though, you know, people can be critical of his work really showed his research shows that there's a, a nonspecific stress uh, elicits the same reaction, right? doesn't matter what the stress is. And I think the global concepts that he established to say, Hey, it doesn't matter if it's stress from a test or stress from a training session, it's going to have that same sequential process in the body. And that's where it kind of gave you the idea of athletes have a limited gas tank and the more stress there is in the athlete, the less gas they have to, to, to adapt and train. So I always say from a found, uh, fundamental standpoint, if I can lower the stress outside the training facility, identify areas in the athlete's life where we can reduce stress, then I can have a higher adaptive response in the weight room. Um, and, and I've seen that in my own personal life in this quarantine where you remove some of the stress from work. Um, you know, I'm around my daughter, my perspective changed, I'm getting great sleep, eating great food. And my strength numbers have been going up steadily and my body comp's changing and it just drives in the fact that how much stress plays a role uh, and really contribute that to, to Cellier's work. Um, and my last favorite scientist, I know these aren't strength coaches necessarily, but they're people that kind of laid that foundation were Anakin and functional systems here. And a lot of that again is, is built around Omega Waves foundation and concepts, but it really showed me that how important the brain is in regulating the adaptive process in the athlete and how, how important it is to maintain what I call like brain health and that whole um, training process. So I'll give you the opportunity here to jump into the uh, strength coach side of things. You know, what are some things you love about the strength and conditioning coach profession and where are some areas that, that we fall short? So, you know, the concept, the reason why I wanted to get into strength and conditioning when I was a master's student to begin with, because I was fascinated with the idea of development, right? You get, you basically have an athlete that's, uh, it's art, right? You have this blank canvas essentially, and then you have the opportunity to mold and change that athlete by the inputs that you put in with the reps and the sets. Um, and because strength coaches spend so much time with the athlete compared to any of the other coaches, you develop a much stronger relationship with the athlete. I think with anyone else in the performance staff you develop that trust. Um, and you teach them so many lessons other than just how to bench or how to squat or how to clean. It's more like, how do you take care of yourself as a person? Uh, how do you be disciplined? How do you hold yourself accountable? All these things that you learn in the weight room that I think set you up 
for, for life lessons beyond uh, athletics. It's, it's your workplace. Are you accountable to your work? Are you disciplined to get things done? What's your mindset? How your mindset affects uh, your performance outcomes? You know, from uh, where I'm starting to see kind of and, – and I think strength coaches in general, I think it comes down to the education that we've gotten in the U.S. has not kept up with how – athletics is changing from this data mindset. And I think because even the NSA, we're starting to see that shift and the things that you guys are doing to bring in these sports science, these data driven concepts uh, into your education system and really understanding uh, the importance of evaluating the athlete uh, and being able to track that progress over time. Um, I just think that's a product of we've never been exposed to it. So we've lived in this little bubble, right? Of I know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. Um, and we kind of fail to see the 30,000 foot view, which I think is what sports science is. It sees the big holistic picture uh, of an athlete very just instead of like a very small strength, power, speed, et cetera. Yeah. So uh, touched on technology there. What, what's the future of SNC look like for you? So for me, if I could really we talk about sports science and, and I've had conversations before right now. We're not really, it's not really sports science right now. It's more strength science. We're very focused on just like the, the strength and conditioning science versus sport because sport entails uh, tactical and technical and mental components when we're really focused on right now is physical. Uh, my long-term goal is one, cause we're really good at evaluating physical now. It's really easy to do. Um, is develop kind of a Madden profile for an athlete to say, okay, what are the key contributors of this athlete physically, technically, tactically, and mental? Because an athlete can compensate in any one of those four domains, if someone's genetically not gifted physically, then how can they make up for it technically, tactically? Because you don't, there's never going to be a, a blueprint for what does an NFL player look like? What does an SEC player look like? Because they're going to compensate across the board so for me, I think the future of performance science, holistic science, is being able to evaluate technical ability, tactical ability, physical ability, and mental ability, and, and do it enough to where you can always have, um, for the athlete, this Madden profile, right? So I can say, hey, my, my strength is a 72, but my technical ability is an 85, um, I know that the average NFL player looks like this. So it, it gives the athlete that roadmap to say, all right, I've maximized my, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a junior or senior and I've, I've plateaued strength, I've plateaued speed. The, the amount of work that I put in is not going to give me the big return on investment versus if I say, okay, let's maintain these levels that I'm at right now and really enhance this other area of technical uh, deficiency and bring that up. It's going to make me a better overall player. So it's really for me is identifying the avenues for every athlete of what's going to give us our biggest return on our investment of time. Because now with NCAA coming down and saying, hey, you can only have so much time with your athletes. How do we maximize that time individually, physically, technically, tactically? Because right now I think my senior is going to train the same volume as my freshman. And we know the freshman is going to get a much bigger return on the investment than my senior. So is there a way that we can say, hey, seniors that have developed and we've seen that plateau in these abilities – can we then just take their time and devote it more to maybe film or something on the practice field or a skill component? I think when we get to that level, then we'll actually be doing sports science, the holistic view of the sport, not just so singular and what we call strength science. 
Yeah, so let's jump that holistic view of of athlete development towards the career development of strength coaches. What are some non-weight room or or as they get called soft skills that really benefit strength and conditioning coaches uh, throughout their careers? Yeah, so I think a lot of that is, and, and that's more like the Brett Bartholomew speed and the conscious coaching and, you know, developing those interpersonal relationships with these athletes because, you know, if the athlete doesn't, I want to say respect, if the athlete can't relate to you, they're, they're going to have a hard time working hard for you or buying into your process. So you can be the greatest in uh, writing programs, but your athlete doesn't buy into it and doesn't work hard you're not going to get that return on the investment. Um, so being able to clearly communicate uh, with an athlete, develop those interpersonal skills. So it's that, Hey, this is why we're doing these things, or this is why I'm holding you accountable. The same as everybody else. It doesn't, I don't care if you're a starter or, you know, one of my third string guys, uh, this is why we do things. So really having your core values established and then holding those uh, players accountable to those things and just being consistent um, with, with how you have your training principles, how you run your weight room, everything is the same for every athlete. And I think in the long term, you get much, you know, a lot of respect. They may hate you in the short term temporarily, but then a lot of times you see them come back and say, I'm glad that that person did that for me because now I'm so much more accountable in these areas. Yeah. So, um, as a young strength coach pursuing the field, what was the best advice you got? my favorite thing that they ever said to me was have your training principles uh, or methods or, or principles or a few methods or many. So basically, you know, don't be married to a particular style of training. So you may be someone that identifies with Olympic weightlifting. That's all you want to do with your athletes, but that's just a method. Um, methods can change over time, but your principles don't. So principles meaning like with NSCA, progressive overload and specificity, those things never change, but your methods might. So what it does is, all right, this athlete can't squat because of spondy. Well, okay, that's a method change, right? Well, I can belt squat them and get the same outcome. And it really kind of changed my mindset of there's so many ways that we can train an athlete and provide a stimulus, our methods, um, that it really just didn't focus me into this very small box of, all right, we're going to do, um, an Olympic movement then we're going to go into a core movement with a squat. And then if anything of that gets thrown off, then it just completely ruins your, your training session. So really kind of, you know, understanding my training principles, um, and then not being married to methods. That's great. Um, how can our listeners connect with you? So my email is on our website. It's just chris.morris at uky.edu. Uh, any of my social media accounts, uh, chris at chris morris at C Morris PhD. Um, but yeah, email or any of my social media accounts, you know, hit me up on there with any questions or um, that you might have. Awesome. Dr. Chris Morris, University of Kentucky, Director of Performance Sciences. We are really excited for the NSCA Advanced Periodization Virtual Clinic coming up in November and in, in your presentation on that. So, so thanks for, for that. And also thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And also to our sponsor, Sornex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. You often hear these podcasts recorded at NSCA conferences and events. Why not join us at the next one? You can get all the details on upcoming events at nsca.com events. 
Thank you for listening to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We truly appreciate your support and wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you enjoy our episodes, please write us a review at iTunes or Google Play, wherever you download your episodes from. Also, be sure to subscribe so that you get these delivered to you every other week right on time. You can also go to NSCA.com and check out the episodes there. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.